Good morning, or good afternoon. <laughs> well, good afternoon, yes. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Welcome. Well, I am. How so, are you? Uh, great. So excited about today for so many reasons, including you. And oh, I, um, I just want to give everyone just a second to come in, and then we'll give them a little bit of background on kind of the overview of our talk. For those of you coming in, welcome, welcome. This is, of course, Armand Suchan, and we're going to have a great time today. Um, might as well just kick it off. So what, what we are going to do today is start with the 555-year tradition of apprenticeship and master artisans in Istanbul. We're going to go through how the process works a little bit. Then we're going to focus on your personal experience with two different masters and going through the system. Then we're going to go over to England, Hayricha, and we're going to talk about how you sort of expanded your training, your time working with Stephen Webster in particular. Then we're gonna get into what you've been doing personally during quarantine. We're gonna look at some of your fabulous work featured in Mel's book, Coveted. We're gonna talk about um, what you've been doing with non-binary as well as men's jewelry and take a bunch of questions throughout. So everybody coming in, welcome, welcome. Um, please put your questions in the question box. When we get into more of the photos, I'll turn off comments, but you're welcome to comment throughout. Um, so Armand, welcome. So happy you're right. here. Um, why don't we start off with just a little bit of the historic images of the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul. So um, we, we think of, I think, the bazaar system with this painting, um, just sort of looking at this very exotic, you know, trade from all over the world, specialists, people coming and going. This is about 100 years old in yes. Istanbul. And this is pretty close to the modern the day. Days. Yeah. So, you know, can you explain a little bit about how people choose jewelry in the Hans, what the Hans are, and then, you know, how do you select? Like, do you have a family jeweler like we see in India? How do people typically find their path through the jewelry in the bazaar? Well, fantastic. Well, Han, actually, we could translate it to English uh, as in English would call it like in, like where uh, literally the tradesmen, traveling tradesmen came with their animals. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were actually buildings where uh, in the ground level around the courtyard, you had the stables for the animals and the upstairs were like all separate quarters for the tradesmen to stay while they were conducting their business in the city. Well, um, that was like historically, they were like, you know, uh, 500 years ago and the uh, word Han uh, is nowadays called to uh, is called for any building that it houses many separate quarters that each quarter is like uh, used for different businesses either offices or workshops so around covered bazaar you have many of them and uh, so each Han houses many many quarters and where you have like different workshops and masters conducting their businesses uh, when it came to selecting a master, it, it's mostly is word of mouth or uh, either you are referred to that particular master by a family friend or that master is, uh, is a family jeweler for, for many years. Uh, that kind of, that was the network that you go and select a master. Uh, when you go and select the master, or most of these masters, uh, either they come from background of goldsmithing, jeweler, uh, bench jeweler, or stone setting, and but they create their own stock, so they do also serve as like jeweler. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, literally, you uh, you go to them with the reference of a friend, uh, or it's you know, or some some other way around, and. Uh, they will uh, they will show you some examples from their own stock and uh, or they will guide you to design your own thing on uh, jewelry uh, maybe supplying a sketch uh, or a picture and if it's agreed and they carry on they, they start the production that's uh, how the process uh, normally 
went you long. Would, you would know someone who would know someone. You exactly. Would it's, main, it's mainly all about word of mouth and reference. Mm -hmm. And I, most of the masters, uh, they do have, uh, either they have shops in the covered bazaar, in actual historic area, Mm -hmm. Or uh, they have uh, shops and workshops in the same premises in, an, in another building outside of the covered bazaar. Or it could be that, you know, they have a shop in the covered bazaar, workshop outside of the covered bazaar. I mean, the, my, my second master, Misak Toros, uh, whose family had a... Um, I put him had a, Yeah, hey, here we go. Exactly. Uh, their family has a has has a had a shop in the covered bazaar adjacent uh, building which is very near to covered bazaar. And downstairs was a shop and upstairs was a workshop. So we are not looking. We are not talking about huge, huge spaces in here. Most of the spaces were really really small. So, uh, but they uh, they were in the same premises. So when we want to explain the living tradition of specializing and becoming a master, can you talk a little bit about how you would choose, for example, to be a goldsmith versus uh, setting rose-cut diamonds versus a European setter? And maybe tell us a little bit about like what is the certification process to becoming a master? Okay. Uh, well, actually, there isn't, uh, again, uh, traditionally, uh, talking about, uh, talking historically, the most of the time, uh, the decision was made by parents. Mm -hmm. uh, the parents uh, made the decision. Uh, learning a craft and mastering a craft is always been taught as a gold bracelets in one arm, one's arm. So if you master a craft, it's meaning that you can practice that everywhere. Mm -hmm. and uh, you will make your living. Mm -hmm. So uh, you are given to a master in a very early age and your parents decide uh, which craft you will go as an apprentice. So, so traditionally your that's That's very, yeah, that's very traditional. You know, okay. we are talking about like 50, 60 years ago. I don't think that kind of... As young yeah. as 10, maybe, right? Well, 10, 10, 12, 15. Uh, but uh, at those times, 10, 12, you know, it wouldn't be surprising. And no, these and, days... They, they... And, and actually, I do want to make that point. For those of you watching, please comment with us. Because I think it's very important to, to recognize that there is some gray area. This is not child labor. This is a very traditional way of learning, as Arman just said. A, a trade that will sustain you forever. So if you wait until you're 20, how do you how do you have enough skills to get started when you're going to go out on your own? So I think, you know, we we talk a lot in the US about oh, no child labor. But there's a big difference between learning a skill and, you know, putting a child to work, learning nothing and suffering. So to be clear, what we are talking about is artisans learning a skill, which does start very early as an apprentice. Now, you are you did not actually follow that exact path. No, and uh, I uh, I joined as an apprentice to the trade around like acting around 16, 15, okay. 16. Uh, I was, you know, around my high school years. Mm -hmm. So uh, coming, going back to the apprentice, uh, your parents chose which trade you would go. Uh, they always, the family is always favored a very well-known master. So you, you, could, uh, you could go and learn from them. And also as, it, it's as a future investment, since the, your master is very well-known and your uh, future career is also going to be in uh, in good hands since mm -hmm. you come from a good master so uh, that's how the decision is made and uh, you are given to a craft either you go for a goldsmithing uh, or jewel bench jeweler or stone setter you know it could be like you could, uh, you could be either setting stones in uh, we call it in turkish is alaturka which is like setting rose cut diamonds with mm -hmm. the foil back or uh, you could go to a stone setter, which would be setting stones in European style. So these uh, distinctions and these trades uh, or the crafts were uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. They were 
much more defined. And nowadays you can find a setter that they could set both stones, so no, uh, you know, without any problem. And uh, once the apprentice get into the trade, maybe later on if he wanted it, he, uh, he could change it to another craft. So okay. it's not that you are obliged to so stick with one master, yeah. And when exactly. you started at 16, were your parents choosing it for you? Were your parents? Well, it others? was more of a, yeah, it was more of an uh, advice from my father because I was very good at with my uh, hands, making models and drawing constantly. So observing this, uh, he thought that my, abil my abilities were like, you know, in it would be best used in uh, becoming a goldsmith. Mm -hmm. But until then, I had no idea what a goldsmith would do. So, uh, yes, it, my introduction to the trade it was like that. And uh, I was um, referred to a jeweler mm -hmm. uh, by a friend of my father, who was a very well-known stone setter in the Covered Bazaar. Mm -hmm. So my uh, adventure started in Covered Bazaar like that. So uh, you go in, you start with your master number one through the family. Yeah. They knew this person. Yes. This was a stone setter. Did you no. already have a passion for it or you're starting? I'm, I'm very curious because you worked with two masters. So how yes. does it work to get you to Misak? Because he's number two. He's number two. Well, and my first master was in Covered Bazaar and he was, a, he was a goldsmith. He was a bench jeweler. He was producing mainly for the Covered Bazaar. Uh, it was a, it was mainly uh, mostly commercial workshop. So you know we were doing lots of commercial uh, jewelry, but also handmade. I mean it wasn't sort of like mass production or factory or anything like that. Uh, going to Misak was uh, a personal soul searching, to be honest. So uh, around it's like around four years when I was with my first master. I started to uh, take like drawing lessons in the weekend. Uh, so when the summers, in the, we didn't work on Saturdays, so I took those days as a going to a drawing lessons and I start taking and drawing. Uh, and that led me to eventually designing jewelry and it just something very came naturally. And uh, uh, after that, and, uh, in the same time, I was also started to play with the modeling wax the carving wax and uh, that that led to another thing and uh, in the same time I was also following uh, foreign publications like magazines or newspapers and things like that and uh, in there I was seeing that uh, there were some uh, illustrations about jewelry designs and pieces uh, they had somewhat had a different flair than what I was seeing in Covered Bazaar every day or in a workshop being made. So I, uh, I really wanted to know more about the creative art side of the thing or mm -hmm. the design of the jewelry. So uh, we started the search on how can we find a master that, you know, we could learn something like that from him. And uh, th those years in I'm talking about 19 late 80s, and they weren't too many They weren't too many masters that they were designing their jewelry, and they are selling it to their uh, client Can clientele. Can you tell us approximately how many masters designing jewelry at the time would you have considered? Are we talking about 20, 100, 1,000? Well, uh, it's very difficult to give a number, Sharon, because uh, designing jewelry, I mean, if we are talking about an individual design style. At the level like, you were looking at. At the level that you, uh, internationally we came to know, like, yeah. you know, you would point and you would know this is the person who designed it it would be difficult to tell how many there were, but they weren't such a uh, distinct identity of when it came to design. They were like really amazing masters, huge craftsmen. Mm -hmm. They had their own style, but they, uh, they kind of like produced stuff in uh, mainly in European, French European, platinum, uh, or other, uh, in other tastes. Okay. But when, when it came to distinctive identity in design, that was something totally rare. And uh, only people, only person that was keep referred to us in, within our search was Misak Toros. And like, uh, he and, was- and this the, is Misak in the, in the image there? Misak is like- 
1970s, I think, in his uh, in his father's workshop in a, in a very famous old uh, Han uh, next to Cupboard Bazaar. That should be the upstairs workshop of their shop. And uh, yes, uh, so I was referred to him by a family friend, and uh, he wanted to come and see him. And uh, and he said, like he sent the word that please bring your drawings as well. So, so now in that twenty years old. I'm almost like I'm not not yet 20 I'm like 18 or something okay. and uh, so by then I knew that it wasn't going to be a very conventional master accepting an apprentice meeting so yes uh, Misak, uh, Misak's family has been in the business for four continuous generations so uh, Misak being the last representative and uh, his family uh, always made, designed and produced their own jewelry. Mm -hmm. And uh, throughout the years, um, Misak's father was very well known in the mid-century in Kabat Bazaar. And uh, he was producing, uh, making, designing jewelry in platinum mm -hmm. uh, in European or French style. And, and uh, that, you have a question from Richa. Um, were most of the goldsmiths at the time replicating older designs, so more traditional work? Was Misak super different at that point, or is, was it more of a trend to European style jewelry? When yeah, Misak was Misak was definitely a black sheep when it <laughs> came to that, and uh, literally, uh, he, he he took a he took a training obviously from his father from other uh, other. Uh, these are other masters, uh, but he used that traditional, uh, traditional training mm -hmm. and uh, put it into use for his uh, more artistic, more freestyle uh, designs. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was definitely an odd one out. And uh, so uh, literally there weren't like too many people and his designs most of the time were difficult for the for the people, for the craftsmen to uh, understand uh, in the covered bazaar. So at this point, if you had chosen to stay, and we know you didn't, which we're gonna talk about in a second, but if you had chosen to stay, what would have been the typical path to being a master yourself? So you're an apprentice to Misak at this point. How long would it have taken? Is there sort of a, a typical expectation of when you go out on your own as a master also? Well, normally the traditionally, by the way, I don't know if you are hearing, we are like street singers in here, so <laughs> we, are, we have a company. <laughs> I love that. Maybe they're excited about our, our uh, inauguration. Oh, that's like literally they waited for the for today anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, like uh, traditionally, when you go in up as an apprentice uh, to a master, uh, let's say you, you joined around like 12 or 13 years of age. Right. And uh, by the time new apprentices came after you, you literally climb up the stairs in the bench. You move into the bench. Uh, so you, uh, you are given more work to do at the bench. Uh, you sort of like, you don't go out that much to run the errands. Mm -hmm. So by the time you are, you are reaching around like 18 or 19, you're about to go to your uh, compulsory military service. Okay. You become a journey, uh, journeyman. Okay. Uh, this is the second, the next level from the apprentice, yes. And you go and uh, finish your uh, compulsory military service, you come back and either you carry on with the same master, again as a journeyman, and, uh, and uh, maybe you become uh, head of the workshop mm -hmm. uh, by looking after the other craftsmen. Okay. Uh, or if you have the means, you go and up and open your own workshop. That was something that it depended to your capability at that time. So, uh, but you needed at least 10 years, a good 10, 10, 12 years to master the craft. And uh, so you are able to open up your own shop. And uh, when you open your shop, uh, your mastery was judged by who was your master. So your reference was actually who did train you and if anybody wanted to work with you in this closed circle of jewelry trade they would go and ask your master about your character and your work so if you've been a good you know good craftsman and your character was impeccable and uh, so they 
will give you, they will start giving you work. And that was how your reputation was based on. And uh, when you needed to open a workshop, yes, there was a certification that needed to be uh, needed to get from the state back guild uh, craft guilds. But that was mainly, uh, that is still you need it, but it's mainly formality. I mean, uh, everything you do with your master and around Covered Bazaar, mm -hmm. it's actually, uh, you know, it's your certification about your character and your mastery. Okay. And for those of you watching, please let us know in the comments, have you personally been to the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul? I'm very curious to know how many of you have seen it yourselves. And also just to keep in mind, we're talking about a system that's basically unchanged for 555 years, yes. right? I mean, yeah. Misak is different in that he was doing much more radical designs. You are different in that you came in both at an older age and also that you leave. So that actually brings us to your choice to go to England, which I think is a very interesting one. So maybe you can tell us, we're gonna end up, those of you listening, we're gonna go over to Stephen Webster in a minute. We're gonna talk about how that worked, but I'd love for you to tell us, you know, you could have stayed on forever. You have a famous uh, well, who loves you. You could have set on your own. So why leave at this point? Uh, well, uh, it was, I. You know, I didn't even imagine in my wildest dreams while I was working in Covered Bazaar that I would end up in London or in a college or something like that. But uh, then again, we're going to this. Yes, uh, yes, the Stag Beetle. And um, when I was working with Misak, and um, we, uh, we, I say we because my family uh, were researching uh, into if there was a possibility to get an education like maybe an, an academic side of the whole thing and uh, to get some sort of, um, a, a, you know, fine arts school or a design school that, you know, I could go and uh, get the academic side of the things. And um, so this research was going on at the, at the back while I was working with Isaac. And um, so we come across uh, with Kent, Kent Institute of Art and Design and uh, and with a total coincidence, and uh, we discovered that they were also attending the British Council uh, Education Fair in Istanbul in that year. So we, we went and uh, have some discussions and things. But it was just a practical uh, reason that we chose Kent Institute of Art and Design because it was near and English was the only language that I could just about speak by then. Mm -hmm. uh, but also uh, a second and bigger endorsement came uh, from uh, Chris Walton, who was at the late 90s, was uh, the head of design and technology director in Goldsmiths Company in London, which I met him in one of my first visits to Munich in Horienta Fair. And he, point, uh, he pointed at Kent Institute of Art because uh, by that time, uh, Kent Institute was getting all the college cups in Goldsmiths Company competition. So after hearing this from him, our mind was pretty much was made. And uh, so, and uh, literally uh, I worked with Misak for three years and then I went to military service, completed that. And as soon as I was back, I was, I flew to England. So uh, that's how I started the Kent Institute. And how do you end up with Stephen Webster? I should say well, again, 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 it via Kent Institute of Art and Design because uh, Stephen is also alumna of the Kent Institute while it was called Medway College of Art and Design uh, in his time, and uh, so he happened to looking for he happened to be looking for uh, somebody to help him in his then small workshop. I mean, I'm talking about 1995. How many people uh, workshop? We were like four of us and him, his, his yes, him, awesome. his brother, uh, other friend and me just so Love very you. beginning. And uh, so uh, and my tutor, Brian Hill, and uh, put me forward for that position. And I literally started tra traveling from uh, the college, which is just an hour away from the London uh, to Fridays and Saturdays. And then uh, when I graduated, the whole thing became full-time and stayed with him for 11 years. 
uh, both you and Stephen Webster are getting a lot of love in the comments. Um, I'd love to talk about, so at this point, for those of you listening, you're out of a system which is extremely stratified, right? You're either wax carving or you are a goldsmith or you are a stone setter and the trades tend to stay very separate. But when you yeah. come to Stephen Webster at this point with a workshop of four people, his brother, Stephen, you're really in a little family. Can you talk about how your process worked? And can you give us, for example, this stag beetle that you both worked on? How did the creative process work for the stag beetle and in general for you in the workshop? Yes, the environment was definitely different from the one I used to in, uh, in Istanbul. Like, like you said, in Istanbul, every craftsman was specialized in one craft. You are either goldsmith or stone setter or enameler or engraver. So everything that's one piece just literally visited every workshop until it finished. Uh, you wouldn't find anybody that, you know, they would design something, make it in gold, set the stones, engrave it and polish it and finish it. So you wouldn't see this. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe they were, but I didn't see it. But uh, I can't remember. Uh, I can't remember anybody it's uh, doing all these processes as one person. So uh, when I came to Stephen, it was something that I had to get used to because, like, they were all like designing. Then making in gold, uh, if it needed engraving, in, they engraved it. And uh, him and his brother set the stones uh, and then they polish it and plate it to finish it. So literally, you, you were, as one craftsman, you were making the whole, you were conducting the whole process alone. So along the way, I needed to learn how to polish and plate, which I didn't know. And, uh, that took some sort of uh, some time to adjust, but eventually I was literally finishing the design, uh, which Stephen did. And, uh, and I, from, from looking at it, I start uh, carving it, making it metal and uh, bring it to the finish apart from the setting. So everything finished inside the workshop. How did this go with the stag beetle? How did this come about? Well, the stag beetle was, uh, I don't know, it's quite an old piece. And a uh, stag beetle was uh, mainly carved in wax. Uh, one day he designed a stag beetle. And um, so it came to me. And that was the time when uh, I got hooked onto the bugs. And uh, I just went to start collecting them after this, uh, after this <laughs> approach. And... Uh, well, it was an interesting piece. Some parts were made, uh, the body and everything else, the body and clothes were made in wax. And then the later on, it was completed in uh, metal. And the piece actually won the, in modelers category, won the first prize in Goldsmiths Company's uh, competition that year. And uh, I think at the back, uh, we have like black mother of pearl inlays with uh, amethyst set on it. So I don't know what year it, it would be, but uh, it's really, I think, twin, uh, 2000 or something like that. And then this fab shark that you worked on. Yes, hammer, hammerhead shark. And uh, this, is, uh, this was actually modeled directly in, in the wax as one piece. Uh, but while it, uh, while it was wax, uh, I articulated uh, from the dorsal fin to the tail fin. So you got like, I think, four or five joints that tail actually it kind of moves, articulated. Wow. So uh, and after, afterwards, it's set in uh, blue sapphires. Oh. I absolutely love this piece. Um, we're going to get more into your wax carving when we get into quarantine, but I just want to bring up one question that I'm definitely going to address with the quarantine carvings, which is maybe we'll just talk a little bit about how you choose what to carve in wax, where it's appropriate, where it's not appropriate. Yeah. So for example, with this shark, why would you start with the whole piece as one single wax versus doing the articulated parts separately? Well, it's just like, I think like every master, every craftsman develops their own way of working with things. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, you know, every, some other master could have gone through a different process of making it. It's just like in a way that I develop doing things. And for me, I just want to see the first, the whole thing. And then if I'm going to uh, chop into it, I would do it. <laughs> I, 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 would, I would do it after 
after I see the whole piece. So I know where the movement is going to go, how is it going to move, but I need to see the uh, exact silhouette before I go into the secondary details that when it, it needed to move or anything like that. And just to foreshadow, um, m many of you hopefully know that uh, Arman is in Melanie Grant's book, Coveted, on jewelry as art. And he is very much a sculptor. And we're also going to show some of his sculptures in a minute. So I think this is a, a great way to think about the artist's approach to the piece, particularly to movement in a piece. Yeah. Jewelry has to be functional as well as beautiful. So I think super interesting. Um, so you're in the workshop with the four, the four of you. And again, you could have stayed, right? But you choose to go back home to Istanbul and to set up on your own. So can you talk first about, you know, what, what changed for you after working with Stephen that, that affected your process? How do you well, work differently? Uh... Yes, I mean, I stayed with Stephen for 11 years, so it's quite a long time, and the company obviously grew and uh, became big, and um, I just wanted to sort of, like, see what, I, what else I could do with all the, you know, experience I gained and, uh, for myself. And uh, so the coming to Istanbul was a gradual move. I it sort of, uh, I stopped over in Milan for five years teaching there in a private school uh, about wax modeling. It's called Scuola Orafa Ambrosiana. And after that, I came to Istanbul, uh, which gave me uh, is a much needed time and space uh, to look within. Because if you are working for a craftsman for such a long time, and you are, you are part of a specialist team that, uh, to, that creates the vision of a single designer, and there is an amazing experience that I think that you know, I sh every craftsman uh, should go through. But when it comes to designing your thing and finding your own voice, and uh, that is also important, and it is a different um, different process. So uh, coming back to Istanbul gave me that time. I just looked in, looked within, and uh, tried to develop my own language when it came to making my own things. So now we're going to give everyone a view of your workshop. So I'm going to be putting up a video. I'm going to stop the comments for a moment. And if you'll just walk us through how that works, what it looks like and what we're seeing, that would be great. So let me put that right up. And here we go. Oh, yeah. Well, this is my mood board. Literally, that's uh, kind of where I accumulate my visual references for all the collections. And uh, this is my bench drawing bench. And uh, yes, this is where everything happens, really. So uh, traditional jeweler's bench. And uh, my waxwork tools. Gorgeous. Yeah. Looks like you get really good light. So can you tell us yeah. where you are relative to the covered bazaar? Uh, well, actually, I'm, uh, I'm far away from Covered Bazaar. I'm more into the central side of the city. I'm away from the historic side. Mm -hmm. And I, I've been into this premise, premises for almost like three years now. And uh, it's more central, more in the European side. And uh, it's my own studio, and, uh, which is very near to my home, uh, which gave me the advantage to work during the quarantine times. Sure. So... And, uh, I'm quite happy with the place. I do go backwards and forwards when I need to cover the bazaar still. Mm -hmm. And how does that actually work? So if you were in the bazaar, presumably the materials that you need, there's also individual vendors that are quite close by that you would go to if you're needing wax, if you're needing other supplies. Yeah. How does it work when you're out of the bazaar? Well, it's not a big problem. I mean, the distances between here and Bazaar is like 20 minutes. So it's literally, and uh, you got a lot of people coming, going backwards and forwards. You got like uh, couriers and things. If you needed something, you just, you know, you order it and it comes. It's it's not a big sort of distance that it, that would create a problem. So you could go very early in the morning, bring everything that you need and you start working the whole day. I started doing my own thing without questioning. It's just like, you know, that's how I, uh, you know, it's instinctive, really didn't think about it, you know, because I had, um, 
I, I knew I gained, I, my experience is unique. So uh, literally I looked in, look within and see what I can, what comes out and uh, put those into paper and create the collections around them without thinking if it's just, uh, you know, um, if it would go with the market or not. It, it's more about my self-expression. So this is a fabulous piece from um, one of your Burst Horizon pieces, Burst Horizon yeah. Traveler, I think. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about where this idea came from and how you chose the materials and how this came about? Well, this, because this belongs to my Odyssey collection. This Odyssey collection is based around um, based around the goddess, it's the, which is the heroine of this collection. This goddess travels the universe uh, in a form of pure energy and um, she chooses a planet and she descends uh, to that planet and she starts the, how can I say, she puts the elements in right order mm -hmm. so therefore the life can flourish. And uh, whenever she uh, visits Earth, she manifests her genius in, uh, in forms of mythological birds, like cranes and owls, that, which they are present in all cultures, mythologies all around the world. So uh, the whole collection nar uh, narrates this pure shape, droplet shape, evolving into feathers and like to supple necks. So this is the narrative of the, about the collection. And how about the stone choices for this one? The stone choices for this one is a blue Swiss topaz. It's like a it's cabochon and you got like blue sapphires and with like really light green sapphires. Uh, also you got 18 carats rose gold beads uh, in between the stones. The, actually the ring is made in 925 sterling silver. Wow. Oh, that's interesting. So we're going to come back to that about materials. You have a lot of questions about materials. But first, let's do this one. I love your stacking rings. They're amazing. Yes, that, this is the orbiting spirits. And uh, this also, you could like have this in three different colors. And uh, this one is like yellow gold, rose gold. And uh, one is set with like pink sapphire. And uh, I think it's yellow sapphire at the side that we can't see it right now. The inner uh, sections are enameled, red enameled. So uh, this is also very, it's all, every ring is made to a specific size because the design is, uh, is like, um, self-perpetuating so you really can't size it so you, every time you need to make a new one to the size there's another variation you're getting a lot yeah. of wow and awesome yeah. i totally agree they're unbelievable um okay so what i would love to do now is to shift us into the earth burst goddess necklace can you give it i love this story so will you explain the story and inspiration on this one yes the, again uh, my my Goddess is uh, again this one that the first middle drop section is uh, evolving feathers. You got like feather uh, details carved into the main shape, which um, you got a pink tourmaline set on top, which is oval and cabochon, mm -hmm. and uh, you got like pink sapphires, which they are in different grades of color, and um, at the and the sides you got um, again with pink sapphires and eighteen cards beads worked on it and the whole piece is textured mm -hmm. and uh, plated in black rhodium plating. Would you say that your time with Stephen Webster changed your view on color or your view on materials in any way? Well, definitely. Uh, because uh, Stephen, when it originally, the, when the time was with Stephen, the most interesting thing, apart from you know, everything being made in one workshop, is just uh, his choices of color and mm -hmm. choices of stones, and uh, the way he put things together with different kind of colors that you would otherwise wouldn't expect. And um, so, but other than that, his most important thing, he made this uh, in a. In a, with the traditional craftsmanship, with the best traditional craftsmanship available uh, to bring it to life. Love. Um, this is another one of my favorites from Odyssey. Oh, yes, the descending swan ear cuff, which uh, 
is with me. I don't oh, know if oh, you can cool. Do. Yeah, let yeah. me turn off the comments so people can I don't know about the of quality of the pictures. Um, yeah. If you if you hold it up and then pull it back slightly, it usually focuses it. Yeah, and maybe a little closer. I love that you have the ear to put it over. <laughs> yes, I, I had to sculpt that as well because once you make the ear cuff, the alone the ear cuff doesn't speak to the person, so yeah. you're gonna have to make the yeah, ear as well. The ear. <laughs> <laughs> so that actually brings us to quarantine. So as you said earlier, you've been very lucky. You have your own workshop nearby, which allows you to keep working. And I know yeah. you had some very interesting commissions that will let us get into your wax carving technique itself. So maybe you'll start us off by telling us the story of Bacchus, please. Oh, this is Bacchus. And um, this was actually a commission for a belt buckle to be given to a, uh, as a present to a vineyard owner. Um, so the Bacchus was a <laughs> yeah. the obvious choice. And um, yes, and uh, literally uh, I looked around all the, you know, historical drawings and the, uh, sculptures and things mm -hmm. and uh and it was a free hand and literally this is the this is the one it came up whoa and i'll i'll show another angle of this so you have different colors in the wax how are you yes. finding them did you have it in well, mind always people ask me i mean during my years as a teacher as well and uh, because uh, i don't know again that's totally me uh, that's something i developed without even sort of seeing or from anybody else but the thing with different colors normally i do work with green colors which green is like the hardest that you can have as a wax okay. so it holds detail very well and everything and uh, but the other colors like red and purple or uh, or blue in that respect they have a uh, softer Okay. When, it, when you work, they have so, soft, uh, how can you say, that? they are less dense, They're they are soft. Powerful. Exactly. Okay. So uh, many years, it's just instinctively, and uh, I started putting the details in different colors by not knowing uh, accidentally that also gave uh, some sort of character to the piece in wax. But anyway, you will lose it because it was going to go to casting. But uh, anyway, the, it gives a good picture now. So Fabulous. And this is the finished belt buckle. Yeah, this is the finished back, belt buckle with the bronze patinated back plate. Uh, I do want to point out for everyone viewing that you actually started doing men's jewelry before women's. And I'm yeah. going to argue as we go through what you call the men's collection. I think it's non-binary. I don't <laughs> want a lot of these belt buckles and rings. You just have to make them really shrimpy for me. Um, so here is another wax carving that you did during, and you have a comment from Zach that he thought it was sculpted jade. It is yeah, really it, amazing how you make this uh, look. I mean, it doesn't seem yeah. like wax at all. It's incredible. Yeah. So how does this piece come about? What are we looking at? Well, this piece is also was a commission and, um, and a client of mine uh, had this antique uh, wild boar tusk rather uh, sort of lying around in house and she came to me and said, well, can we make, you know, a necklace out of it? And I, well, she previously bought um, a ring from me, which was from the Dragon Knot collection. So, dra yeah, exactly, which we will see later on. And uh, so it was natural that Actually, I, can put I, I, I chose I chose that uh, design language mm -hmm. on the necklace as well. So uh, I directly started working on the tusks and um, created the wax around them. So uh, yeah, here we go. And uh, they are all hand carved during wow. the quarantine. So it's it was a good time for complex carvings. <laughs> How does this work when you're working with a natural material? So you have a tusk, and I would assume you need some heat to be able to melt the wax and work in it. Do you yes, work about uh, splintering uh, it? How does that How does that process work? Well, uh, firstly, I, you need to stabilize the natural material, like the the tusk, and, uh, so that you can work with it or you, you don't damage it. So just to avoid damaging it, uh, I wrapped around with a metal tape so I don't damage at all the, the tusk. 
and then I melted the wax over it. So literally, uh, and I start car start carving it while the wax was on the tusk. How long did this take? Here's the final piece. Oh God, I don't know. I think it took me like a good month and a half to finish it. But then again, it was quarantine. There was yeah. nothing else to do. All the, 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 all the businesses were closed. You wouldn't be able to cast anything. So I think I finished this and uh, and I, I was able to cast it in June. Wow. And it just because the, the casters were closed. That's amazing. And you do have some requests for uh, pieces made out of viewer tusks. So everybody, just so you know, you can direct message him to put in an order and have him do something custom with your tusks. Oh, and the, the, the tusk, obviously, the, each tusk is uh, the animal grows, you know, it's not like exactly the same. So the profile is changing with one, one tusk to another. So I don't know uh, another task would come along, but it, it needed to be made all over again. And that actually was a question from Sonia. If you rubber mold your wax carvings, are they one of a kind? How does that work for you? Well, yeah, okay, just for the archi uh, archival point of view, you can rubber, rubber mold it. But then again, if you're not going to have the same task to fit into that, there is no point to cast it again. Either you're going to have to fit something else. But I just for the point of view, archiving it, I do rubber mold it. But uh, if somebody came with a new pair of tusks, by looking at that, the profile of the task, I need, I need to make everything from the scratch again. Okay, and if we look at one that's in process, I love looking at the stages of this one. So this is yeah. fun. Will you tell us what we're looking at? Uh, this, this is a project that was in my sketchbook. It's called Hidden Crane. It's also to uh, des designed and thought about it for the addition to the Odyssey collection. And uh, literally, uh, you got two drop shapes that they kind of intertwine, that the one side is very abstract, the other side is more figurative with the, with the feather details, and you have a negative space of a head of a crane. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, this, yeah, here you go. Yeah. I'll show the, the carving as you've put it in with the wing. So what, how long has this one been in process and what is your plan for it? Well, uh, the plan for now, this one is in uh, silver. So I think it, it will require some uh, cleaning and setting. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about setting some stones over it mm -hmm. to make a nice chain, to go with a nice chain. Mm -hmm. Gorgeous. Um, all right. So I said earlier, you are also very much a sculptor. And I know this one is one of uh, this, this is an unfinished symphony. This has been going on for many years now. <laughs> so tell but, us about the materials and what got you started. The material is, uh, again, is green wax. is hard green wax. Uh, literally, I sculpted the whole uh, torso in a plastiline, like in a very traditional way, and then making a mold from it and then cast it in uh, green wax, that the wax that I carved. Uh, so literally this was a solid green wax torso. So Incredible. on it, by drawing and literally drilling and taking each piece out, carving separately, putting back again, then taking out and then putting back again. So we are talking about over 100 pieces that they kind of interconnect. So this, uh, you know, once is separated, is like I think 20 or 30 odd pieces now. Uh, but it is all carved, hollowed out from one solid. That one is just incredible. I, I would be very happy if I could cast this this year in bronze. Wouldn't that be something? Amazing. Yeah. Well, you saw it here first, folks. So now we're in Dragonaut, which is non-binary or unisex. Yeah. Tell us, here's the backside of it. Can you tell us a little bit about Dragonaut? Yes, um, Dragonaut um, is a unisex collection, like you mentioned. 
Well, um, in this geography, is like uh, in Turkey or in Anatolia, uh, the myths, uh, the, for other cultures that the myths and fairy, the, the, the names that you call in other cultures, they are myths and fairy tales. They are just normal history in here. So it's pretty much that has in the background. I mean, uh, the Istanbul historically sitting in a, as a sort of last stop in the silk, ancient Silk Road. Sure. And uh, all these uh, stories from Far East uh, came to this city and were told uh, in here. So literally it's about my fascination about the Far East and their arts and crafts. So seeing them, uh, seeing their uh, examples in all over the world in museums about this amazingly stylized uh, creatures like the dragons or other mythical creatures. And uh, this, um, their deeply textural feeling, I wanted to bring that forward to modern times. So uh, that this collection comes from there. So you are, you have quite a few bench jewelers viewing right now. So All right. what we're doing next, I want everybody to please take a, a good look because Armand has done some really... Right. That's the custom version of the one that you are showing now. Beautiful. This is actually the first one I ever made in bronze, wow. which, has, which has a family heirloom star sapphire in the middle i don't know if you can see it yeah that's awesome and i love the idea that you make belts as well as necklaces and rings and bracelets because i personally think that's non-binary i would love to have more belt buckles i think these are amazing so this collection blows me away i think this is interesting <laughs> And will you tell us a little bit, I'm gonna run through some of the intersection pieces first. So if we look at rings, I think it becomes very clear what your inspiration well, is. Exactly. Well, the intersection is about my childhood memories growing up in 1970s in Istanbul and, my, uh, and the old American cars we used to have uh, roaming the city streets. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were the first mobile sculptures I ever see. I ever saw. I mean, their styling was, you know, first sculptures that I laid my eyes on. And uh, it was funny because most of the time they were like neglected. They were really in bad shape. And uh, But every now and then you got a glimpse of chrome mm -hmm. just winking at you through mud and rust. And uh, I just loved their faded grandeur far away from Amazing. You know, where they actually belonged. And uh, the, their uh, visual clues remain with me. So the intersection collection came along with those clues. How about this one? This is fab. It's the airflow, airflow lock uh, mm. bracelet with bronze and sterling silver and with rubies. Um, everyone watching, if you want to send me a present, this is the one I would like. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into some of the cool belts. So again, you've been doing belts and men's jewelry before you started women's jewelry. Yeah. Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about these guys? Oh, that's the, that's the full flame job. And uh, well, uh, some of the maybe viewers, if they are from LA, the flame job or full flame job is literally, I mean, my love of American cars and everything, okay, in Istanbul, but later on when I went abroad and start studying design and stuff, and you, you, I discovered the whole world of like, you know, counterculture in you know LA and hot rod scene and everything so it came from uh, those flaming hot rods and uh, I worked them with bronze and like uh, orange sapphires and yellow sapphires and uh, that is a, that is actually a custom piece it's just made only one and as like a drop shape uh, carved garnet I can definitely see how you and Steven were soulmates because he also has that LA rocker thing amazing <laughs> And this is a motorcycle, no? No, uh, this is uh, this is actually inspired by the Pontiac Chief uh, that the Pontiac, yeah, Pontiac had uh, used it around 1950s and 53s. I got inspiration from there, and uh, I make 
each piece different. In here, uh, the face is worked in bronze and the helmet designs are made in silver. But uh, when you look at it and you have, you've seen a war paint, mm -hmm. and, uh, which is inlaid in silver into bronze. So uh, if, I may, if I make in each edition, in each order, the, the war paint changes. So none of the pieces oh. that I made, they're exactly the same. And can you talk for a second about how you choose which materials and the mix of materials? Because it's very unusual to combine silver and bronze and white and yellow gold. Well, uh, the bronze, it's just uh, because um, it has, you can do so many colorations and different, uh, and, it, uh, and it ages interestingly. It, it's, it, come, it, it has its own life. And I love that. And it, mm -hmm. uh, it gives a quite a good... Um, interesting palette of color to work with and also with the texture and everything like that it's not very usual but uh for me it's just another material material to express your idea fascinating and here's a cool pendant yes this is from also intersection uh, collection and this belt yes it's a slipstream belt and uh yes this one I have it in here. Oh, good. Yeah, and oh, uh, nice. still back. You have like details. I don't know if you wow. can see it. Wow. Yeah. Let me pull the collar oh. off. Yeah. Wow. That's and, uh, cool. The ba the backs are covered with black enamel and topped with some ornate uh, back plates. Okay. So. Uh, Yes, and uh, this is also uh, worked with 925 silver with uh, steel brush tex texture and uh, polishing. Yeah, this is the this is the back of the Screaming Eagle uh, belt. Awesome. We were just at the point of your incredible belts, and I would yeah. love to know how long would a piece like this take you? Uh, from design to finish, it will take probably a couple of months. And uh, so, you know, we are looking at like, you know, from designing out through just coming up with the idea to making the, uh, you know, carving it, making the sculpture, making it work and you know, getting the, this one is a, a particular belt cut just for him. It's just not a normal belt. So the, it needs wow. to be cut in piece. I, you know, just we are looking at like two to three months. Wow. I mean, again, I would make the argument this is definitely non-binary. I would love to have this belt. And I also feel like this belt is literally the dream of everyone in Los Angeles. It's just... It's, uh, it's called silver, silver Rawhide. And okay. uh, you, can, you can connect um, a wallet chain through a hoop in the nose. And uh, with, uh, which if you have a wallet that happened to have a, like a small button that you can connect it through there. And um, yes, it has, it's quite ornate. That's awesome. And then just to finish us out, we have another close up on the Yes, this uh, Screaming Eagle. Super cool. It's bronze and uh, bronze uh, and uh, 925 silver. And uh, you have... Uh, kind of, uh, I like pinstriping art they do in Hot Rod Scene, and I tried to, to um, simulate that with engraving. So using the patterns of um, pinstriping and engrave it on the, on the surface of the belt. Wow. So uh, clearly your relationship to jewelry is extremely personal. You wear these pieces, they relate to your childhood, they come from your inspirations throughout your life. Do you have a, um, oh, uh, you're asked, by the way, can we reach your collection? Yes, through Instagram, and how else should uh, people approach you? Oh, they could approach me like by writing at me and, uh, and uh, you know, via Instagram or email me. Perfect. And he, his workshop is operating during quarantine, which is really yeah. a big plus. So do you have a favorite image of someone in jewelry or jewels that you really think of as like a, an overriding reference? Well, growing up uh, again in 1970s, it's like if, uh, if one image was, uh, you know, uh, comes to my mind is like uh, in around 70s in Turkey, uh, Anatolian rock in, 
was in full swing. So yeah, and uh, the one very famous performer of uh, that genre was Barish Mancho, and uh, who was uh, mixing the Anatolian folk songs with the rock in 70s rock, and uh, his unique um, stage costumes, uh, which he mixed a lot of like uh, ethnic jewelry, ethnic belt buckles and big rings and necklaces and chains. So that must have left some mark. <laughs> I, I love this reference because it is a time when men were enjoying jewelry, right? You create a lot of pieces well, that I, men... It's just, it was very original. It's yeah. just like, you know, we weren't, you know, it was something, you know, you, 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 are, you are wearing cloaks, kaftans and things like that. And uh, it's, uh, I don't think there is any kid growing up that years that, that not, they didn't get influenced by his looks and everything because it was just uh, so original. And uh, he mixed, um, he, he mixed this uh, stage costume with the, uh, with the songs and everything. So uh, and many, many generations grew up with his songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it was a very original artist when it came to sort of, uh, you know, creating an image. Incredible. So um, what I'd love to close with is um, the curator of the Han Museum argues that we're facing an end to the apprenticeship and master system in Turkey as a result of the economic climate, et cetera. Now that you're back in Istanbul and with this full circle view that you've had, what do you think about the future of apprenticeship and mastery in the traditional system in the Grand Bazaar? Well, uh, when I was when I started my apprenticeship around late eighties, and uh, all these uh, ill effects of like liberal, you know, just in embracing liberal policies and everything was already in full action, and they were showing their ill effects and. Um, and following years, it came with uh, hyperinflation, and uh, literally even the best masters were thinking about how can we sell, how can we make something that we can sell fast and make an earning before the local currency drops down. And also that uh, you have the like the tourist boom, and which most of the masters went uh, towards like making. Uh, well-known uh, making like Western knockoffs of uh, other jewelry. So this is, wasn't an environment that was uh, that was that its priority was like advancing craftsmanship. Right. Uh, unfortunately, uh, craft needs a patience to be uh, to get mature and to get creative. Yeah. And in, in an environment that uh, in an environment that uh, is is got is fueled with this survival anxiety, it's mm -hmm. not exactly at the right situation. And of course, today uh, we are seeing uh, inevitable results of that. And um, mm -hmm. the master apprenticeship is no, it's it's not like the one how it used to be. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, we have a saying in Turkish uh, that a master, the, the apprentice needs to outperform its master. So that's how the uh, how the craft would go forward. So uh, looking at the future uh, of the thing, I think for me, the, for my personal point of view, it will be the the traditional craft as a core knowledge needs to be preserved and transmitted to the next generation craft people who are aspiring to become jewelers or jewelry designers or bench jeweler, whatever. But the, the craft, the traditional knowledge, it's not, it shouldn't be something that is, is so sacred. It's, it's, mm -hmm. It shouldn't be like a relic that it cannot be touched. It should be given as a, like an alphabet. And uh, each uh, and each, per, each person that learns it should be encouraged to um, to bring it on their own vision and aligning each letter in this alphabet, creating their own unique language. So that's how a traditional craft 
could stay relevant to the contemporary time and the contemporary consumer or collector, whatever. So I think this is the way that, uh, you know, this is how that craft uh, should go forward with, you know, the, yeah. And, and your version of training apprentices is that you teach. So could, can someone study wax carving with you even now? Uh, well, at, well, at the moment I teach in a, uh, in a local university mm-hmm. and uh, because of the COVID situation, uh, it's the last year we started doing online, but obviously uh, the applied arts is very badly hit because of this situation because it is difficult to teach somebody online when you doing it at home it's, and you have no control over what's going on. So the, actually the, the lessons are more like uh, conceptual these days mm-hmm. and more assignments or I'm just, uh, you know, we are making models out, so out of other materials because uh, jewelry making, it requires speciality tools and uh, we cannot control the environment that the students are working in their home and how are they working with the tools. So therefore, uh, we are not teaching like hands-on bench jewelry, but rather conceptual okay. lesson. And what materials do they use if they want to practice? Well, the main materials that just like normally uh, base metals they use and mm-hmm. uh, like brass or copper and uh, just, um, just a simple, uh, I teach like a very uh, early level. They are actually fashion design students and um, they do have like two hours a week in jewelry design. Uh, but I teach them like normal, uh, just saw blade, cutting cutting a piece of metal with a saw and uh, then later on try to uh, manipulate it and make something three-dimensional out of something that is two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. I think even looking at your Odyssey carving in process is an incredible education to see the dimension and the detail as you added. It's really fascinating. So this one, again, is going to be a pendant in silver at some point very soon. um, So to recap again, you are in Istanbul. Your workshop is operating. People can direct message you. You are carrying on a 555-year tradition, but bringing it very much into the future as a sculptor, as an artist, and as a jeweler. And I'm just so glad you were able to share some of your process with us today. It's really it's really such a treat and, and such a pleasure to learn from you. Well, thank you. Pleasure, pleasure is mine, Sharon. Really just wonderful. And uh, thank you for being part of a terrific day. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, part two. <laughs> and, uh, oh, uh, Istanbul Jewelry Week says, thank you for passing your knowledge and experience to the young artist. Absolutely. Um, and thank again, you. he does teach. So there's many opportunities to learn and grow with Arwan. And uh, I know we're going to be seeing you in art galleries and collections as well. So thank you, thank you. And thank you, thank Melanie, you. for putting Arman in your book, Coveted, because it introduced me to his work. And I'm so grateful. And yes. um, hopefully we'll see you very, very soon or see you soon <laughs> on uh, Zoom and otherwise. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you, thank you. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye, thank you. Bye. Bye.